everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides. And on the show with us today is the South African hammer, Trevor Prangley, the UFC Bellator Strikeforce veteran, multi-time MMA champion. So glad to have him on the show with us today. We talk about his formative years, including coming to the United States from South Africa, his, his background in wrestling. He was a very, very successful amateur wrestler. In fact, he was a national champion in South Africa. Talk about his early MMA career, competing in the four men enter one man survives one night strike force middleweight tournament where he got to the finals before losing to George Santiago. Uh, we also talk about his two fights in strike force with Anthony Ruiz and specifically we key in on his bout the, the rematch at strike force at the mansion Two, where Trevor beat Anthony again, but he gave him a rematch there uh, because they had a kind of a, well, it wasn't because of the controversial ending of the first fight, but that definitely uh, was, was part of it. And we also talk about what Trevor's up to now is gyms and then what he's doing uh, in terms of dealing with, uh, you know, COVID and that sort of thing. So we, we, we jump into a whole lot here. Uh, so with that, without further ado, let's get to it. All right, on the line with us, I'm glad to welcome UFC Bellator Strikeforce veteran and multi-time MMA champion Trevor Prangley to the show. Trevor, how you doing, man? Good, man. How are you guys doing? Good, good. I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, you have a, a we're going to jump right in. You have a very interesting background. You're born and raised in South Africa. You got into amateur wrestling at a very young age, progressed well, eventually winning the national title, which is a, a huge deal. Uh, you barely missed making the Olympic team instead of becoming an alternate. And you decided to move to the U S to kind of up your training. You did well in wrestling at a, a local junior college in Idaho. And, and you got all American honors twice before an injury uh, really changed things. And you started getting into jujitsu. And I know I just covered about what, 23 years of your life in about, <laughs> about 30 seconds, but uh, what, what kind of made you want to make the switch to MMA from, from amateur wrestling? Yeah. So <clears throat> when I got done with uh college wrestling I had that injury and I I got injured in the finals of the national tournament and you know I've always been a competitor and just wanted to switch and compete in something else and it just seemed natural to go straight to jiu-jitsu I'd been training jiu-jitsu for about a year before I finished my college wrestling and uh you know got done with the surgery and uh just went right into it it, it was just it, it felt natural to me I enjoyed it and it was a lot of fun there, you know, it's uh, one of the, I know they tried to do raw, which was like real American wrestling in the mid two thousands, that sort of thing. Obviously MMA is a natural progression for a lot of amateur wrestlers, but also, I mean, you just, you can't really make much money when it comes to, to, you know, amateur wrestling, once you get past, or you just can't really make a lot of money at period. Cause it's, it's amateur, it's not paid. So does that factor into it at all as well? You're thinking this is going to be a career you want to use your body as far as, you know, physicality for a career and, and MMA was the, the way to go. Was that part of it as no, well? I don't, I don't think so per se. I mean, my first fight was in 90, 1998 and there was no money involved. In fact, we, you know, paid our own way to drive down to, to wherever we went. And, uh, you know, you got lucky if the guy paid for your hotel room. So it was just the competitiveness of it and, and, and testing yourself against somebody else. I think I, I've always wrestled since I was like five years old and it just, it's like in, in, up here in, in Idaho, I don't know how the rest of the states are, but when you finish with college, there's not much as far as club wrestling around. So, you know, there's a lot more jujitsu and a lot more availability on that. So that's what I went to. Okay. All right. Makes sense. Well, you mentioned when you started your career, 
Uh, you turn pro, you end up winning six straight, including a submission win over another very strong wrestler in Chael Sonnen, who you'd meet again down the line. You, you then fought Babalu Sobral, who I actually just interviewed a few days ago as we record this. Uh, and you end up deciding, you lose by decision there, end up deciding to drop down to 185. Was that something you'd kind of had in your mind that you wanted to drop a weight class or, or was that just kind of forced by the loss to Bobaloo? Like what was your Yeah, it was kind of forced by the loss to Bobaloo. You know, <clears throat> when I wrestled in college, I was always within a couple of pounds. I never was a big weight cutter. So it was, uh, when, when I fought Bobaloo, I think we're four to two or five and I was just, you know, that's where I was walking around at. So I didn't have to cut any weight and, and that was great for me. I didn't really enjoy cutting weight a lot, but, uh, I mean, who does? Um, yeah, no, but it was uh, on the advice of my, my coaches, Javier and Bob Cook, were like, it's better if we cut this weight and get uh, the stuff going, you know? Well, that made a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, Bob Lou, he fought Fedor at heavyweight. I mean, he, he was a pretty big dude. So, it, it you know, it made sense there. But I don't know if you've put any thought into this at all, but I looked into it a little bit. I mean, you're the most accomplished South African MMA fighter of all time. Uh, you know, Neil Grove had a run in Bellator, but but really you're you're the best guy to come out of South Africa as far as MMA goes. And in early 2005, you were coming off a submission win over uh, over Curtis Stout, UFC 48. You got to fight in your native country for the only time in your career. So w- what did it mean for you to, to be able to, to get a, a fight and a win in your native South Africa? Well, I actually lost that fight, so it pretty much sucked, to, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, well, I, we got to correct your uh, your record then because it shows that you got a win there. But anyways, go, oh, go ahead. You can leave it. <laughs> no, <look. laughs> now I went over and I fought at heavyweight, you know, and um, the reason I went was to see my family. They paid for my whole family to travel over there and gave me some spending money and it was totally just a deal we did and um i honestly wasn't in the shape to to fight and i was winning that whole fight up until about the last minute where and i was super gassed and pretty much got beat in the last minute and uh yeah it it was still a good experience it cost me my ufc my next ufc fight took me like two or three more years to get back into the ufc because they cut me after that loss Wait, so did they cut you because you lost or they cut you because you took a fight outside your contract? Well, there wasn't a contract. It was a one fight contract. And uh, we had called them and said, can we go fight? And they're like, yep, you can go fight. But if you uh, lose, you know what I mean? You're done with us for a while. So that's what happened. That's harsh. Jeez. Well, that's how it was back then. You know what I mean? People forget the UFC was uh, when I fought there, there was only like four or five shows a year at the most. You know, it was really hard to get into the UFC and hard to stay there. If you lost two fights, they cut you pretty much. That was just the way it is. So it, it, that's how the, the organization's a lot different now. The roster was small then. Like I said, the shows were, you know, four or five a year at most. Well, things have definitely, definitely changed. as far Yeah, as you know, you didn't have all these fight nights and all that stuff. And I, I'm happy it is like that now. It, it gives everybody an opportunity to get in and... Uh, you know what I mean? We get better fights and better fighters building themselves in these shows. But yeah, uh, it was different back then. When I, oh, yeah. When, and that's that's why, you know, I, I love doing this on the podcast that we're digging into the history of the sport. And, you know, look, we don't we don't have baseball. We don't have football. We don't have basketball as far as MMA goes, as far as the longevity. You know, you talk about uh-huh. baseball, pro baseball, 120 years old. I mean, we're 93. You know, so yeah. it's very interesting to see how much it's evolved just in the short history. Yeah, of as I talk to my son, my son's like, well, why didn't you stay in the UFC? I'm like, well, I lost two fights and they cut me. Well, why did they cut? I'm like, well, that's just the way it is. You know, it was really hard to get in. 
because they only did so many shows a year and it was really hard to keep your spot. You know, you had to perform. The pressure was a lot higher, I think, then than it is now. Yeah, it's well, and I'll say it's kind of a different kind of pressure, though. I, I talked with uh, uh, George Santiago, who you faced, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. And we, we interviewed him about uh, his actually him winning that one night tournament. And one of the things he was saying was that the pressure in his estimation is different because you have to have this persona to go along with it, that you've got a, you know, kind of a Colby Covington, you know, Chael Sonnen type, you got to have this, this persona. And, and if, you know, if you do and you draw, then you might be able to get away with more losses, but if you don't have that, you better win every freaking every single match. Yep. Yeah. So for sure. All right. Well, after that, you, you bounced around a little bit. You got you did end up getting some more fights in the UFC and you headed to the burgeoning Bodog fight organization. And while you're under contract with them, you made your strike force debut against Anthony Ruiz at Tank versus Buentello in 2006. And I, I watched this fight. It was a, a good one for you. You were definitely winning. And then you you catch Ruiz in a very tight arm bar. And I, I remember I remember watching it thinking, well, that's it. I mean, he's done and he didn't, ha- but he didn't tap and the ref stopped it anyways. And Ruiz yeah. p- protested. And I felt bad for you. You were in a pretty bad position because you didn't do anything wrong, but the crowd like turned on you and they're booing you during the, the post-fight interview in the cage. Yeah, it was his home. It was his hometown. So right, right. <laughs> You're kind of the heel that tapped out the lo- or that beat the local hero in controversial fashion. But yeah, you know, kind of kind of looking back now, how how do you feel about how things went down? I mean, did you feel like you had it and he man there was nowhere for him to go did you feel like he had a chance of getting out of it i felt like it was just a matter of time before he tapped but i just uh i don't understand why the ref stopped it's the weirdest thing i've never seen a a ref stop an an armbar like that you know it wasn't like he was writhing in agony or anything or we didn't hear any pop or anything it was just a a strange stoppage regardless and i you know i I would have been upset too if i was him so i I don't uh, see anything wrong with the reaction that he had and his crowd and followers had. So. Yeah, I don't know. The crowd were they're kind of jerks for for booing. Yeah, they can, they can be. They can be. Yeah. Uh, well, you you. But would, uh, you know what? I did the right thing. Gave him another shot. You know. Yeah. So. Exactly. And we're gonna we're gonna. I really want to delve into that fight. We're gonna talk about that. But you would end up getting three straight fights in Bodog fight, and you you beat Japanese legend Yuki Kondo for the organization's middleweight title, which is you know a big deal. Uh, you then returned to Strike Force for four men enter, one man survives, which was a one night middleweight tournament. Uh, didn't end up being a great f- night for you. you. Had a very competitive fight with Falonico Vitali, but that ends pretty unceremoniously due to an inadvertent eye poke on your part, and Vitali couldn't continue. And he was obviously. Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was more gassed. You know what I mean? It was. And it was California. You know, if they looked at your eye and you said you you couldn't see, they stopped it instantly. I don't mm-hmm. think he really wanted it to stop. I think yeah. it was more of a ploy to, to, to get some some breath because I felt like the tide was turning in the fight. There was a really hard first round. Then the second round, I started to feel like uh, like a lot of my fights were that he was wearing out and I was going to be able to take take over for the rest of the fight, you know? So you think it was a bit of, of games, gamesmanship on Vitaly's part, trying to get a little bit more Sure, sure. And obviously not uh, thinking that they would stop it. You know, it being California... That's what they do, you know. Mm-hmm. So, well, you can see well then why he was really, really upset if he was just trying to get some, some, yeah, you know, some time. To he, did, he did protest that stoppage quite a bit. A lot, know? yes, he did. Yeah, he was yeah. very upset. Yeah, yeah, probably even more so than Ruiz, I think. Yeah, um, for sure. But, but you end up advancing, and then you you end up facing Santiago, and and it was fairly quick one, only about two and a half minutes, and he caught you with the the knee to the body, and then 
some punches, but looking back now, how do you feel about those fights? Did you feel like you were, I mean, it's, you know, I talked with Santiago about preparing for potentially two fights in one night that you don't need, you didn't even know who you were going to be matched up against until I think the Mm -hmm. weigh-ins. So uh, how did you feel about your preparation? You feel good about it. You just got caught. What what do you think? Looking, I I felt good about it. You know what I mean? And uh, basically I remember if you remember how the tournament went, uh, I can't remember who the Japanese guy was, but he didn't, he didn't clear his medical. So we had to get Sean Salmon in the night before. Right. Right. San Diego picked him. And uh, I think there was like a 25 second fight or something. Salmon went to shoot San Diego through a knee and knocked him out. So he really didn't even throw a punch in his first fight. Not a hell of a first fight. I think my preparation was good. I think I was just really wore out from that first match. Yeah, you definitely had a much you definitely had a much harder uh, first round fight than he did for sure, one hundred percent. And I'm actually I'm trying to quickly look up who the um, who he replaced because I we we talked about it several episodes ago, so I'm not I'm not remembering off the top of my head. But um, it was that that first fight with Salmon. I, I don't know if you did you did you remember seeing that because that was one of the it was a very weird knockout. Uh, he he didn't really catch him with a knee. He really, it was more of like a flying kind of shin and it didn't really seem to connect real well, but man, they had to call in the, the, you know, the, the medical people and all that stuff. That was a pretty crazy, pretty crazy situation for sure. But anyways, yeah, it ends up, you know, obviously not going the way that you wanted it to. Uh, you were out for about 10 months after that. I wanted to ask real quick, were you, was that an injury thing or were you just working on your game or what was the the situation? Yeah, there? no, I had an injury going into that fight. In fact, uh, Bob Cook and myself got into a bit of an argument in the back at the locker room after my fight with Vitaly and he wanted me to uh, pull out of the next round, you know, and uh, I didn't want to, obviously there's a lot of line, some pride. And also, you know, I think there was a $20,000 advancement fee. So it was hard to turn down. And I did feel like I still had a chance. And uh, if you watch my fight with Santiago, I went out and I was just trying to get it done in the first round. And he just did it a little better than me that night and put me down. You know, I was, I was coming forward as advancing. I thought if I could just catch him and and and, and put him down and not be in there another three rounds, that'd be the way to go. But it didn't work out for me that night. Ah, that's and that's the way that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know but, what I mean? It's a I don't regret it to be honest with you. It's just the way it goes, like you said. We were fighters, you know. We prayed. Well, we, we paid to fight. And back then, when I started fighting, like I said, there was no money. I was just wanting to fight. I didn't want to, I never, it might've been a mistake on my part, but I didn't want to protect my career by not fighting somebody. Well, it was, it was definitely a a challenge and you know, that's what you got into the sport for. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, Well, like we said, you were out about 10 months after that, you returned as an injury replacement. It was actually supposed to be Bobby Southworth were defending the light heavyweight title against Babalu, a former opponent of yours. And both of them end up getting injured. So you end up doing a rematch with Anthony Ruiz, was that something that you wanted either because, you know, you obviously you had to be willing to do it, but you wanted to give him another shot because of the controversy of the first fight. You wanted more of a decisive ending. Was that something that you were looking forward to and played into your, your thinking? No, not really. There? You know, it was just a fight that came out and uh, it was, I think it was a pretty short notice fight if I remember correctly. Yep. And yeah. Uh, you guys were both injury replacements. So yeah, yeah, not a lot of time there. Yeah. And, I, and I'd been out for, 10 months, like you said, and you know what I mean? It's you, you just don't turn a fight down when they come up. You know, I was coming off a loss. I wanted to get my win back and so forth. So I just jumped right on the opportunity and uh, we went at it. 
Well, what was it like fighting at the uh, the Playboy Mansion? Uh, Joe Diesel Riggs was on the show, and he shared a really funny memory of the first uh, or of yeah fighting. I believe the first time at the Playboy Mansion, and he got like like kind of like attacked by like a large bird ax- backstage. He like punched the bird in the in the neck or something <laughs> like that. I, I, I doubt you I had didn't that. Have anything but... like that? No, <laughs> well, it was. You know what I mean? It was just a fight night for me. It, it was you know I was in the back, warmed up. I think we fought pretty late on the card. And uh, yep, yeah, it was yeah, late pretty on, much yep. when we got done, we we got dressed and we got ushered out. That was it, you know. So didn't get anything exciting. Walked around a little bit before the fight and and checked some stuff out, but nothing nothing too exciting. I didn't get to beat up any birds or anything, okay. which would have been pretty <laughs> awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Diesel's stories between that and his very famous fight with Nick Diaz at the hospital after their UFC bout in the mid 2000s. There was just a yeah. pretty colorful episode <laughs> for sure. Um, but your, your strategy was, was pretty clear in that fight. I mean, just kind of vintage, uh, Prangley, you kept Ruiz on the mat. You really grinded on him and, and it worked. I mean, the fight was never really in doubt. You never really let him get off, so to speak. So are you, are you happy with how it turned yeah, out? Not, was that, not really. You know what I mean? Going? I do what I had to do short notice. I'd been off for 10 months. I was nursing injury. I wasn't in the best of shape coming back into that fight. So I did what I needed to do. If you look at my body in that fight, I look at those pictures and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know what I mean? He definitely don't look like an 85 pounder there. So I was just, uh, you know, but I, I needed to take it and I believed I could win it. And and we just uh, came up with a game, formulated game plan where, you know, we could take a, a win for sure. Well, you got it. I, I want to ask real quick, you, you know, you mentioned 85 and you would go back and forth between 85 and 205. I think your last fight, I believe, was actually at heavyweight, but did you have a preference between the two? I mean, if you're walking around at at 205, you know, you had to cut down. Did you have a preference between the two of them? I would think it'd be 205 because then you have to cut weight, but did you do better at 85? How, you know, it you depended on, on what, who the opponent was. If it was like an A-lister, I would definitely go 85. I'm not going to go 205 and fight one of the top guys in the, in the country. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work that way. But I was, uh, when it was on a smaller show or a or late, a later notice fight with somebody else, I would definitely go to two or five. I, I, two or five, I felt better. But I mean, if you're fighting an A-lister at two or five, they're cutting from 230. You know what I mean? Right. At, at that stage of my life, I was walking around between 207 and, and 210 was about the heaviest I ever got. Hmm. So... Well, you're, I mean, you were just, you look so big at 85, like you're just such a massive guy. So it, it, you know, I would think that probably been like your best, best one, but like you said, it makes sense to, if you're going to do that, if you're going to cut all that weight. Yeah, fight, the per- fight the perfect would have been if they had like a 190 or 195 weight. 195. Division. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yep. I could, yeah. when I, when I cut weight right up to about 192 pounds was easy. And then those last seven was just miserable. You know, I, you know, it's, I don't think there's been any talk of it recently, but I just don't see why there isn't a 195 or, I mean, guys like you, I know, I know Robbie Lawler used to do a lot of catch weight spouts around that. I mean, there's, there's different uh, Frank Shamrock. There's different guys that could just do so much at 195. Sure. And I think, it yeah, would be, I, I think you know, it'd be awesome. Little, you know, it's a little late in the pro- progression of the sport at this point. I think so. I, I don't think know, that that'll ever change. I doubt we'll add any more weight classes, you know? Yeah. And, and we, you know, one of the, we do not want this to turn into boxing, you know, super featherweight and junior. I mean, I mean the, the only way to remedy that is to have same day weigh-ins, you know? Yeah. 
which is, I mean, that has been something that's been talked about to keep people from cutting too much weight and hurting themselves and all that stuff. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it's just kind of one of those things. I just don't, don't know how much it's no, going to You know what I mean? The, the bottom line is we're all grown adults and we make a decision to do what we do and whether it affects your performance or not, it's really not up to anybody else. It's up to the fighter who decides to make that, that cut, you know? True. So I've, True. I've always been a firm believer in that, you know, that uh, you need to be responsible for yourself and, we don't expect the whole sport to change because it doesn't suit where our body type or, or where we're at, you know? Right. Well, we're, we're down to our last couple of questions and I'll let you go, but there was, a, there was talk of the winner of, of that fight between you and Ruiz. Uh, Cause you remember, if you remember Ruiz had actually beaten Southworth by a cut in a non title fight. And then he'd gotten uh, pretty much very similar to his fight with you where, where Southworth just, you know, grinded him and, and which Southworth was a, a teammate of yours. So yeah. I guess that, that made, made sense. Um, but you just, you know, he kind of did the same thing and then, uh, you know, so, but there was talk that you or Ruiz or whoever the winner would be, which ended up being, you would get a title match between Babalu and, and Southworth. And unfortunately that wouldn't happen, but I mean, that would have been a very interesting fight for you because Babalu, again, you, you, you'd suffer your first career loss to him. So to be able to, to get that back, would you have ever considered fighting Southworth as, as a teammate? Was that something you would have ever done? You know, I, I don't know. It, it depends. It depends on a lot of things. I mean, I would have talked to Bobby and if we decided we want to go at it. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? We would have got our team together and discussed it. And um, I'm not sure how that would have turned out, you know? Yeah. But I, would have, I would have really relished a chance to fight Babalu again. You know, when I fought him, I would, I had barely no, any training at all. I was just a, a wrestler and uh, I had trained a little bit at a gym in Idaho. And I just, Babalu was my first fight. I went to AKA in California. And I was down there for two weeks. That's the only training I'd had. So no, all right. Well, for so a guy, I was, and I, by, by, by the time I would have fought him at in Strike Force, I would have been ten times the fighter I was, and, and I would really relish that chance to do that. You know. Well, he and he was pretty deep in his career, I think, at that point um, when you when you had that first fight. I think he was further along than you were. Yeah, so he'd already fought been, in the UFC, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right, but. Um, but anyways, you, you, you would end up fighting several more times in strike force, uh, overall, what are your, since this podcast is about the history of strike force overall, what are your thoughts on your time in the promotion? Any, you know, kind of lasting memories or any just overall, this is, this is how I feel about my time in strike force. No, I, you know, I enjoyed the strike force days. I, I really enjoyed working with Scott Coker. I, I thought he was really fair and personable. You know what I mean? I, he, he gave me his cell phone number and if I needed something, I called him, you know, and it's just. I thought it was a great organization. I enjoyed working with it. I enjoyed fighting with it. I mean, they, it wasn't anything like the Bodog, but nothing was at that stage. But it, it was a, a really fair, good organization, and I enjoyed every fight there. You know what I mean? I wish I had uh, performed a little bit better on some of my fights, you know, and, uh, and maybe worked my way into a title contention would have been awesome. You, you mentioned, you mentioned Bodog fight, which I, I don't know a ton about the promotion. I remember hearing some whispers back then about some kind of weird stuff, but, but just kind of, what, what did you mean by what you, what you said there? Was that held in a positive light or in, in more of a negative light? Cause they positive. Were I mean, I, I honestly believe as far as fighters were concerned, Bodog was the, the best, funnest, fairest organization that ever <laughs> was was in MMA. Really? That's probably why it didn't last. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah. It's, if if they were that fighter friendly, then maybe business wise, it, it wasn't going to work out. Yeah, but but it was. I mean, when, when the run we had with Bodog, if you, if you speak to the guys who were there, was the best. There's nobody who fought for Bodog that 
has anything bad to say about it as far as I know, as far as the organization itself, you know? Okay. All right. Yeah. Like I said, I, I don't know very much about them. I, I remember hearing about them and they were, they had a relationship with strike force. They, uh, yep. Sponsored some of the early events and obviously a lot of crossover and, you know, George, uh, George Masvidal, Jorge Masvidal fought, was under contract with them, fought for strike for several other guys, so yep. including yourself. So that, you know, that makes sense. You still have your, uh, your championship belt from, from Bodog. Did yeah, you get a belt I, for that? I still got it. Yep. Okay, cool. Might, might, might get some money for that someday. Some hardcore. <laughs> you know, know, right? <laughs> I'll keep it though. Give it yeah. to my kid. <laughs> uh, there you go. All right. Well, let's, uh, before we get to our final question, let's talk about what you're up to today. You, you run an AKA affiliated gym in Hayden, Idaho, Trevor Prangley's AKA. And I noticed that, uh, I checked out your website, Jason Lambert, UFC veteran, uh, is your, your BJJ instructor, which I was, I was a fan of his because, uh, he was my height and kind of, I, I don't look like him in the face a little bit, but he was like, if I was going to be a fighter, I would have had his body type. So I was always kind of a, kind of a fan of his. So that was kind of cool to see his, uh, his name up on the website, but, uh, tell us about, uh, I, I believe the website is tpaka.com. Yeah. Uh, tell us about, t- yeah. Tell us about the gym, anything else that you've got going on. Well, we just like moved to gym and we just uh, moved into a 5,500 square foot warehouse and about three weeks ago. And, uh, we're just, we're just keeping going, you know, we're keeping them more of a lower profile because of this, all the, all of that's going on right now with the COVID yeah. and stuff. So, you know, we don't need to be poking the bear, but we're going to keep open and keep going as much as, as long as we can. You know, I do have Jason. He moved up here, I think two years ago and uh, he teaches a noon class jiu-jitsu for me. And uh, you know, he comes in trains at night and stuff and it's, it's been good to have him. It's good for the gym to have two UFC vets in it. And, for sure. uh, yeah. I have a lot of good guys, a lot of good uh, instructors. And we focus mainly on uh, jiu-jitsu and, and, uh, and public classes as opposed to fighters. I'm, I'm not trying to build a fight gym. You know what I mean? I had my day in the fights. I, I liked it. But I, as far as promotion, promoting and so forth, I just I have not, don't have the same interest in that as I have in just coaching regular folks, you know? Okay. Makes sense. All right. Well, if you're, uh, if you're a listener and you're in the Idaho area, as long as you're not going to uh, <laughs> bring any unwanted, unwanted eyeballs, make sure you check out Trevor's gym, uh, of course. Uh, but you went 10 and two and one in your last 13 fights, which included winning the, the King of the cage light heavyweight title. You defended that, that belt six times. Um, looking back now, and I know this might be a little bit tough. I mean, you had, you know, what, 50, 50 professional fights. Is there one fight that really stands out in your mind as being like, this is my signature fight. Like if, if somebody says, you know, Hey, I want to know, I never saw you fight. Like, give me one fight to watch. What's the one Trevor Prangley fight? There was, there was a lot of them, you know, but I think that, yeah. yeah. So when I fought Yuki Kondo, I felt like I was at my best ever. I had the best uh, training camp I'd had. I was in the best shape and really it, it, it was concerned going into that fight because he's a really tough, wily opponent, but it was one of my best performances, like I said, and it, it was really an, an easy fight for me. So I think if Bodog had kept going, I believe I was supposed to fight Gagard Masashi for the title after Yuki Kondo, but the organization had ended by the time uh, we were supposed to fight. So that would have been a, a great test. And you know, Bodog ending kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit because I felt like we'd hit the pinnacle there. You know, I finally at the top got a title in, a, in an organization that's pulling tough fighters in and so forth. And, uh, you know, now it's, uh, it's done. So, and, and plus I was getting older too. So it was really hard to, to pick up a, a, another legitimate organization, you know? Yeah. 
All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go back and see if I can find that fight. Cause I would like to see, I know Bodog does have some fights on, uh, on YouTube and I don't know if they're on UFC fight pass, but I'll, I'll definitely, definitely try. Yeah, to find I don't know. One. You know what I mean? I've, I, they're tough to find some of those older fights, but that was a good fight. That was a great organization. I mean, we had Eddie Alvarez fight in there. Oh yeah, Eve Edwards. There's you get yeah, George a bunch Madrigal of really tough. And, uh, and yeah, Fatal fought for them once. We had Roy Nelson in there. It was, we had a ton of of people, you know. Yeah, the guys, the guys running definitely new fighters. Yeah. No, no question about yeah. that. So. All right. Well, Trevor, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. It was uh, great catching up with you and hearing your, your experiences with strike force and outside uh, the promotion. So thank you for joining You're us. Welcome, today. Man. Thanks a lot. All right. I want to thank my very special guest, Trevor Prangley for joining us on the show today. Hope that you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. It was really nice talking with a guy that I've watched fight many times. It was very cool getting his perspective on things. Hope that you've also been enjoying the other episodes that we've been putting out, uh, that you've been enjoying what we're putting out on social media. Again, you can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at the hexagon pod. You can also message us there. You can also message me at Phil at inside the Would love to hear from you. Would also love that if you would consider giving us a rating and review, uh, whether it's Apple podcasts or however you, you find this show would really appreciate that type of support and would appreciate your feedback as well. Looking ahead, we are going to be covering Strike Force Payback, which featured the only Strike Force fights of Frank Trigg and Michelle the Karate Hottie Watterson. Uh, we're also going to be covering Dwayne Bang Ludwig's main event fight against Sammy Morgan. So it's an interesting event that we've got coming up. After that, I'm not sure exactly who we're going to have on from that show. We're still working on it. We have a yes from Frank Trigg, but we don't have a date yet. So I'm not sure exactly when that's going to run, uh, but we will see. I'm sure we'll get somebody. After that, we're going to be covering Strike Force Destruction, which was an extremely interesting card and that featured Babalu Sobral winning the Strike Force Light Heavyweight title from Bobby Southworth and Babalu is going to be on the show the week after that and that is we've already had that discussion actually and that's going to be it's it's very interesting you are going to greatly enjoy that chat he's very very open very honest and I think you're going to love that but with that we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to 
www.evergreenpodcast.com. ¡Vamos! Vamos.